live and pre-recorded. This is the Red Ticket Blues Podcast. I am Brian Buckley. This is hitting the internet on August 4th, 2016. How's everybody? Well, another week, another Thursday talk. Uh, we have a sports media guest, of course. That is the legendary columnist and sports writer from the Boston Globe, Bob Ryan. We get into when he was the, you know, the quintessential beginning sports writer uh, of his era with the Boston Celtics. And a few other things in between. So, you know, Bob uh, loves to talk and we've got a lot of topics to talk about. So, but before we get into him talking, I want to talk to you about Seat Swap. Uh, you've heard me talk about it before, but you still might be asking yourself. We are brought to you today by Seat Swap. I have one question. What is Seat Swap? What is Are You tell me. That's a great question, Mike. So let, let me answer it for you. Seat Swap, well, they're a ticket agency that, you know, they're, they're different from other. Oh, God, shut the that's a great question, Mike. You see, Seat Swap separates themselves from the rest of the ticket agencies. Why? Because life isn't fair sometimes. And you know what? You got to get rid of your seats and you don't want to lose a ton of money. So you're going to connect with other fans when you deal with Seat Swap. You're going to deal with other fans who share the same passions you do, like the same Joe Schmo you're standing in line with BSing about whatever. That's what you're going to be selling to. Not some fly-by-night place where they all have the same tickets on all the same websites. No, no. This is what you're going to do. So you, even if you want to trade your Mets tickets because you can't go or with someone else for, for a concert in a few weeks. That's what Seat Swap lets you do. And right now, they are for Red Ticket Blues listeners exclusively. They're going to show you how the website's working as it's getting ready to go. And you can contact them. Contact Dan at the email of dan at seatswaptickets.com or josh at seatswaptickets.com. Remember, they're the only place on the internet, the entire internet, where you can safely swap tickets with other fans. That is seatswaptickets.com. Seatswaptickets.com. Hey! Seatswaptickets.com. Here's Bob Ryan. You know him as the Boston Globe sports columnist and around and on around the horn and pardon the interruption, Bob Ryan. Bob, thanks for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Hey, you're welcome, Bob. I got to tell you, we're midway through 2016, and I could have sworn you retired from the Globe in 2012. My, my dad's retired; he doesn't do anything. Uh, so, so this is retirement for Bob Ryan, I guess, right? I made it clear <laughs> in a column I wrote in. In conjunction with the uh, retirement from the Globe in August of 2012, that uh, I viewed this as the end of one thing and beginning of another. That it was yes, I was retiring. I'm retiring from the job I had had for 44 years. I will no longer have a full-time job. I will no longer have a full-time boss. I will have no obligations that I do not assume myself. And I called it uh, the uh, transition to phase two, and said, "Come see me in a year, and I'll let you know how things are going." Well, we're about to close it on at the end of year four on August 12th, and uh, things have gone even better than I ever dreamed because I'm good busy. I, I have managed to get a um, itinerary, if you will, a resume or a, a schedule of, of uh, ESPN shows and, and Comcast TV and writing two or three Sundays a month for the Globe and speaking and, and, and whatever else uh, managed to come along and, and write a book that you know was a lot of fun to do and is, and uh, keep busy but out, without being too busy. But I have to say that most Mondays through Fridays, uh, uh, unless I'm officially away on vacation, uh, I usually have something going. I, didn't, I do three or four radios, uh, which are not full-time, uh, but five-minute, 10-minute hits, 15, 20-minute, in one case, almost a half hour weekly. 
And uh, so all this adds up, keeps me busy, but not too busy. Phase two kind of sounds pretty sweet. I mean, I'm sure phase one was great. But I'm sure there was a lot of, uh, you know, hey, it got pretty busy. We'll get into that. But phase two seems pretty mellow and do what you want and sort of seems nice. You know, it's funny. I'm not complaining, but uh, sometimes I wish I, w- I were not doing anything. <laughs> I have to no, because in, in the sense of I wasn't, I, would not, I put it, I need to rephrase that. Sometimes I wish I were not responsible for anything. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, I, I, I'm responsible to know stuff. Uh, you can't go on a show and, and expect that all they want to talk about is, you know, is 1936 <laughs> or 1984. You know, you have to go on a show uh, with the expectation that you actually knew what happened last night and uh, that you care about what happened last night. And you have an opinion that might be uh, uh, valid about what happened last night or last month or last year. And, um, um I mean, I have to. I read six papers faithfully every day, and 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 another one on Fridays, and uh, a couple Sunday papers, and and try to see what's going on in various sites. And uh, I have time to do it. The average person who's working doesn't have time to do that, but that's all I'm doing. And um, so I'm I'm actually working at it. And, and some days I just wish, oh God, I wish I didn't have to worry about knowing this stuff. Uh, you know, <laughs> but you know what? Uh, I mean, that's the part of the deal. You have to. So, so I do. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to phase three a little bit. <laughs> but right now I'm trying to maximize phase two. I got to ask you, not to get too far off track. What are the six newspapers that you're reading every day? I subscribe to the Boston Globe and the New York Times. They come home, and then I have a place. Uh, in my little town where uh, I am, I have a post, New York Post, New York Daily News, and a USA Today reserved on a daily basis uh, for me. And uh, uh, and then uh, that's five. And then, oh, and I buy the Boston Herald. I buy the Herald. Okay. Now, so that's six. And then on Fridays, I add a seventh paper, which is the Wall Street Journal because of that phenomenal weekend section. And Saturday, when we don't have a USA Today, uh, we, we substitute, we, 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 but we do have a Wall Street Journal. With, that's where all the book reviews are, um, and the good, so um, Saturday uh, I get the Wall Street Journal as well. And then Sundays, I restrict myself for the most part to the Globe and, and the Times. Although sometimes I buy the Sunday uh, Sunday uh, Herald, and I always keep track of the post uh, I, online. Uh, I always want to read because I have to read Phil Mushroom. I was just I gonna, you stole the words right. I mean, again, this isn't even on the schedule of what I want to talk about either. <laughs> but I'm just like, you know what? You're bringing up the post. And my next question here, but we'll go into it here. I, I've heard you say many times that 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 you're a columnist, but you're a fan, and it's not difficult to be both. But it seems like many columnists these days are not fans, and they they go the the negativity route. And, and Mushnick, he's been a guest on his podcast. I love Phil Mushnick, but let's 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 be honest. He's he's not the most positive guy in the world, and he's not a fan of anyone either so has it really been easy for you to separate the two always was let me just go back to phil for a second before i launch into myself i view him he's a sports fan and he's offended by the drift of sports oh absolutely i think <laughs> i think he overdoes it sometimes i think some of the stuff that he that he complains about is nitpicking i think some of his complaints about what broadcasters say Hello. I'm not offended as a fan of the sports uh, by by some of the phraseology. He doesn't like the phraseology. He thinks it's pompous. He thinks that people don't talk uh, on the air the way they talk in real life. And uh, to to what to which I say so, <laughs> but he it does bother him. And there's lots of moral judgments he makes that I do that I do agree with. Okay, some I, I think he, he he takes certain things too hard. But ultimately, it what what bothers him is when. Sports, which he does love and which he grew up loving, are being in which he feels are being defamed or desecrated or trampled or or tarnished. Okay, and like you said, to now, a certain extent, uh, many times he's 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 right on the money. 
Yeah, but you know, but I don't. But it's grounded in a love of sport, and he's offended by what's uh, disturbed by what's happened to it as the, the sports that he grew up liking. I mean, that's I understand, and some of it's technical. I totally agree with him on the use of relief pitchers, totally, yeah. and 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 adherence to a book that is nonsense, and uh, you know, um, and like what I long ago called the creeping Larusaization of baseball, which is now at a full gallop. And uh, and and is not looking you know looking backwards. Okay, <laughs> myself. Now this whole fan thing, I've always been amused by this. Uh, now, but I I fully recognize that we're all different people, and that other people have a viewpoint on what the job is, and people and so many uh, and the majority, the majority of people who become uh, sports writers, and, and and particularly if they become columnists, uh, see seem to think that uh, they have to proclaim a detachment. They have to proclaim that they are not interested on any time at any time who wins and loses. Now, and 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 it's all about the story and the game, and story, and it's all about people, and it's not about the game itself. And and that extends sometimes that thinking uh, to people who cover a team, and uh, they claim they don't care who wins and loses, and they write it in a detached manner. I'm not like that. Uh, I think that. Uh, um, um, the only way I could have done what I did and, and continue to do what I do is is from the inside out. I'm a fan first, and if you don't love this, why are you doing this? Yeah, it's, if you don't it's, like sports, why are you doing it's this? It's very odd it's, for someone. It's like someone getting into the business, and it's like, well, what do you want to do? I want to be a sports writer. Who do you root for? Oh, nobody. I don't care. I mean, that that's insane. <laughs> now, I think you know it's funny. Now, the the extreme opposite of this, of course, is, is Greenberg. You know, and you know, I'm a Mike and Mike guy. You know, and his fidelity, Mike Greenberg's fidelity to the Jets. Right. Uh, is something that he wears uh, overtly and is part of it, but it's almost a, it is a shtick. You know, yeah. it's for real, but it's a shtick. It's a shtick that works. It's a shtick he's comfortable with because he does believe it and he's comfortable with it and he does want the Jets to win and, and, and he does hate the Patriots and he does admire Brady despite the fact that he hates the Patriots and he does admire what Belichick can do despite the fact that he hates the Patriots and, and that's all out there and I totally understand all of that. Uh, you know, and that's part of his shtick. Uh, you know, so that's a complete opposite. I, uh, you know, I don't feel that way about any of these. Any, I, I feel that I have I have strong proprietary interest in the Celtics above all. Uh, that, that basketball made my my career uh, as, as such, uh, and I and I care that the Red Sox. I'm a season ticket holder of the Red Sox. I love baseball. It's the venue to go to. Uh, I'd rather that they win than they lose any time. And and I reveled in, in the three championships. And I particularly loved uh, not only all four naturally, but 13 was a gift from the gods. No one saw that thing coming. It was a wonderful, fun season, uh, and, and, and I loved it, and I ha- was happy to have the tickets available so I could be there when they won and all that. Um, but that's me. But I, I, I had to answer your question. I don't understand the problem that people have with wanting a team to win, watching what just happened in front of your eyes, and then writing it, quote, unquote, although I hate the word objectivity. There's no such thing as objectivity. Writing it fairly. The word is the, – the, the thing you should strive for is fairness. Objectivity is a canard. It's a nonsense. Because there's no such thing. Everything, every word, uh, the great line, I, I always come back one way or the other to that. Mary McCarthy, uh, uh, Lillian Hellman, I don't know who said what to her, to whom, but one of them said, every line she writes, every word she writes is a lie, starting with the words A, N, and V. And, and every word that we write is a choice. Every, uh, you go to, a, you see a game and you have to pick and choose what are you going to report on? What are you going to focus? What are you going to identify? What are you going to refer to? I'll put it that way. Oh, you know, um, so it's it's not objectivity and subjectivity. It's fairness. You got to be ultimately. You are striving to be fair, 
and um, and and you can be wrong, and 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 there's nothing wrong with admitting you're wrong. That's a good. That's always some of the most fun columns I've ever written. Where the oh boy, what a stupid I was, you know, column. That, they're easy to write. They're fun to write. <laughs> it brings a sense. But I I have no problem watching a game and then putting uh, putting off with a fan hat on, metaphorically speaking, and then it's over. Something good happened. Something bad happened. Nothing happened, which is always the challenge. Uh, and and you got to write it, make up something. You got to figure out where where you're going to go. And and then being a writer. And then when I I don't understand the problem. It's not that hard. I mean, that wasn't not for me. Well, I mean, let, let's talk about that. You you were the beat writer for the Boston Globe uh, for the Boston Celtics start in 1969 when you know it was really the wild wild west of beat writing. I mean, to the extent that you, that you were a columnist to a certain extent when when you you know, bring it bring it in the, the game recap and 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 every intangibles outside it. I mean. Because you were one of the first to be involved in the NBA with that, I mean, how did it go? Did you walk in and see everything and say, oh, wow, I got full reign here? Or was it sort of, you know, a little toe in the shallow end of the pool and see what I can do? Or how did you approach that? Mix, mixing cultures, because my other love, of course, is music. Uh, and so we'll go to Andy, get your gun. I was doing what came naturally. That's it. I was just doing what came naturally. And um, I, I, I wrote from a certain style and viewpoint. The, the, the one, there's three words that apply to the way I chose to go about writing game stories as a beat guy for 14 years in the NBA. Point of view. I, don't, I think you need a point of view. And that just comes back to this nonsense about quote-unquote objectivity. But you need a point of view, and hopefully it's a defensible one. And um, uh, so I wrote right away from a point of view. This is good. This is bad. You know, he's really good. He's really bad. He's underrated. He's overrated. Uh, I, I can't explain why I don't like this guy, but I don't like this guy. Or, or you know, this guy bothers me. Or this. And then, then the other subject that, that I took on readily right away uh, was refereeing. And, you know, and, and the idea of – how can you ignore the role of a referee in basketball when referees do two things? They determine how the game is going to be played and indirectly they determine who is going to play. And, and how can therefore you, you, you watch certain things happen and, and not, and not involve the referees in the, in the story. And that includes going way out of your way to praise them when, when, when they uh, are in, involved in, in tough games and, 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 and that could go out of veer out of control when not they in good control and, and they keep it under control and therefore you you know they, they've saved the day you, they should be rewarded and I used to do that too not just say well that was a terrible call and all that stuff no I mean bad any you know one individual call uh, no they're all human everybody's gonna make a mistake but when there's certain trends that you see with people that are you know disturbing so anyway I wrote and I also used to say I wrote these game stories uh, uh, as if I were a Broadway critic, uh, reviewing the play. What did you miss by not being there? What what, what can I tell you about this game that's interesting? Uh, you know, and 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 uh, what can I bring to you that you're, you're going to get over and above the box score? And uh, that's the way I tried to do it for uh, the, the 14 years that I covered the league as a, as a beat. Did you encounter yourself? You know, once once uh, you know more people had access to the games. We're, we're talking way in the future here. Well, games are on TV. All of a sudden now, I mean, you can watch any game all over the world. I mean, but before that, did, did you have trouble once fans started seeing the games writing to describe that scene? Like you say, I mean, you're telling people that aren't seeing something. Now was it like, well, I got, I got to change my style. People know what happened. What, what, no, no, because I, what I found, no one ever challenged me much on this. And if they did, they should. If they wanted to, they, they had no reason not to. I mean, I was always available. And it's the same thing that I feel now uh, myself. Uh, and that is that 
there's a certain why why somebody who's seen a game i know i like to pick up the paper the next day to see how people handled it and to see if they you know if there's something that happened that required some commentary or or some analysis or or quotes from you know some uh, explanation from a participant be it a coach or a player uh uh, I want to see if it's going to be in there to help clarify something that was important in the game. You need the paper to do that. And uh, and, and also, the, the sheer love of writing. I like to write. I, I like to think, quite frankly, and I think I, I would stand up, that I was fun to read. I tried to be fun to read and, 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 and as well as informative. And that, that in and of itself means that you could read the person. You, you relive the game. I, I started, as a, I, I tell this story all the time, um, I got started uh, when I was like five, six, seven years old. My father would take me to a high school basketball game, and it was a big deal in Trenton, New Jersey, where I grew up. Trenton Catholic was 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 a power, and Trenton High was good. And and but I would go to Trenton Catholic on Friday night, and on Saturday morning I couldn't wait to pick up the paper to read about the game because that that and only not until that moment was the game validated in my mind. It was not verified. It not really wasn't wasn't legit until I read about it. And then I read about that what what did I see and that they uh, what I did not see that was they told me about, they would tell me about or I, I just was real then. And and I still want to read game stories which are dying, uh good game stories and there are very few out them of them out there now because they're not being asked the required. Uh and, and for the writing uh, that if it's writing and 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 uh, you know, certain things I want to, I, I'm always hoping to see in, in game stories that I only see on occasion, and and uh, that didn't used to be the case as as the new generation is writing with a different approach. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and if if at all, and I think something lo- has been lost. It was a, a game story is an art form, and that's a it was a wonderful way. It was a well, start the day in the morning at breakfast reading these these stories and. Uh, you know, I mean, I, when I got to Boston in 1964, and Cliff Keen was covering the Celtics, and I mean, excuse me, covering the Red Sox, and I, I started becoming infatuated with the way he wrote. And uh, then, of course, I wound up never, I didn't know at that point I'm going to wind up, you know, being a colleague and a friend and and and, uh, and picking his brain. And you know, and 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 he had a very uh, strong point of view and a very uh, direct way of writing, and it was fun. And, and uh, so. It's still there. If, if it's, if it still could be there, but it's no longer desired. Yeah, you you had a lot of fun uh, covering the team. I mean, you, and it's it's legendary the access and availability you you had to the players to write those game stories. At what point did you when when you're you're working with the team? At what point was there a certain moment when you said, "I'm getting a little too close. I need a new mm-hmm. strategy." Because I mean, you're you're drinking mm-hmm. beers with the team. You're on the you're on the flights. You're doing everything. You're a you're a part of the team. There had to be a moment where I said, "What am I doing?" Wasn't a moment, but there was a combination of things, and it had to do with the fact that I the friction was not me and the team. It's because of my relationship with the team that I had friction with the coach. And and it was very unfortunate Tommy because Heinsen, it, in the beginning, Tom Heinsohn was a really good, good source. And and it was a good mentor in, in terms of mentoring me into the whys and wherefores of the NBA. I came to the NBA in 1969 as a 23-year-old kid who loved college basketball and had paid not cursory or scant, but not as much attention to the NBA. 
uh, over the years. I went to Celtic games with my friends and I, when the schedule would come out, we would circle the, the double headers, the old double headers, and we would circle the 76ers uh, and, and the Lakers. And, and we'd go to the double headers and the 76ers and the Lakers, $2 second balcony, Boston Garden. Uh, but I didn't, wasn't a fanatic on the NBA. I was a fanatic on baseball and I was a fanatic on college basketball. But by virtue of Good fortune. I wound up covering the Celtics opening night in 1969. Tom Heinsohn was a rookie. He was 35 years old. Had never coached a day in his life. He had retired at age 30 due to bad knees, and then became a, a an award-winning insurance salesman and, uh, and a part-time broadcaster. And now he's the coach of the Celtics. And he knew it was wise to cultivate the agent from the most important media outlet in New England, which we were far and away. No TV station, no radio station, no paper could touch the Boston Globe in 1969. And and I knew that it was I needed help to learn the league, to learn what the NBA is all about. And Tom Heinsohn was very willing to provide that help. Countless cups, cups of coffee and, you know, this and that, and, and, and time spent. Meanwhile, I was cultivating relationships with the players and learning about the NBA from the eyes of John Havlicek, Sat Sanders, Don Nelson, etc. the first year. And uh, it, after about two or three years, maybe about a fourth year, the year they won 68 games, 72, 73, I've got very strong relationships with the players and I had had a, a good relationship with Heinsohn, but a couple things happened, and I wrote about them, and basically were reflecting a point of view that would, I frankly, would be more of the player's take on this matter than Tommy Heinsohn's, and he resented it, which you can understand. Right. He kind of thought he had invented me, or you know, or or, or you know, or cultivated me, or and and, and frank, frankly, did he owned me in that regard? And that was never going to be the case, and and it never was the same. And by the 1970. Uh, Five end of the seventy four seventy five season, I came home from the playoffs uh, when the bullets when when the Warriors swept the bullets, and I said to my wife, I cannot believe this. I hadn't yet I was I had not yet turned thirty, and I, I said to my wife, I can't believe I'm saying this. So I need a vacation. Need N E E D. I need a vacation. I was mentally whipped at, at all this stuff, and uh, and that was so. And that's after you know stepping away from the Celtics having lost, but they lost in a painful series against Baltimore, and I banging my head with Heinsohn a little bit, and, and it wasn't fun at all. And uh, so I came back the next year, and it was another year of strain in that regard. They win the championship, with, with, and uh, we have a blow up in the first after the first game in the finals, and I'm, we're not talking. And I actually spent the 1976 uh, series in Phoenix, staying at Paul Wessel's house rather than the hotel with the rest mm. of the media, and uh, and going to the games from driving over to the games from Wessel's house and then going back and jumping in Westfall's pool. I mean, this is kind of unheard of. Yeah, there. I'd say so. <laughs> but but that's especially the, the, the beat guy for the most important paper in New England the was, was covering the final, staying at the house of the best player on the other team. This wasn't, you know, but Westfall and I had gotten quite friendly when he was in Boston. As you know, he was traded after the conclusion of 74-75 season for Charlie Scott. So anyway, Tommy and I had a blow up and uh, I said, I got to get out of here. And I, for a lot of reasons, but that was really the primary one. I did not want to come back another year and, and nobody would have benefited from it, least of all the reader. And I know I wouldn't have. And uh, so I begged off the beat and uh uh, and that was the first of three times I covered the team. But so long-winded answer to your question, but it was basically, and I said to myself, I'm never going to let myself get this close again. I was very emotionally attached to the team and the players, and I never, I can't let myself get this close again, and I never did. But I was challenged in a different way when Bird showed up because uh, that was a, 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 a spiritual basketball attachment 
you know, when the greatest player I'd ever privileged to cover came along, and that's after I thought I'd already seen the greatest player I was ever privileged to cover in John Havlicek, who was a friend and whose book I did. And now here comes Bird, and that, that was a whole that changed that was a whole other ball game. But in terms of the closeness to the team in general terms, uh, it, I never did get that close again. Uh, but I, I did develop a relationship with Larry that I value to this day. Yeah, I'll get to Larry in one second. I just want to go on the other end of that because I mean, you know, the, the relationship with the media and the player these days. I mean, modern athletes—they don't have time to to really get to know the, the the beat writers or anyone like that, and they're beyond sensitive to everything. So when you're you know interacting with the team back then, I mean. You know these guys, you know their family, you know how they operate, and then you write something negative. What is that like the next day in practice? Because now I think these guys look and they say, ah, well, whatever, that's some guy from Joe Schmo. He always wants to be negative. Well, this guy, I was throwing down beers with him last night. They, see, they knew – well, this is where I, I worked hard to develop a, a, uh, a stature of I know what I'm doing. Uh, and uh, that may be my – and never try. I learned from great mentors at the Boston Globe too. Uh, there was a desk guy named Art Keith, and, and he's surprised when I tell him this, but um, I owe him a lot because he reined me in a little bit from some of my exuberance and excesses early on, and and, and, and warned me you don't want to overpraise, and, and you know you got to merit so that when you're praising it means something, you know. To, so I learned to try to differentiate not just between good and bad, which is easy, but good and great, and great and transcendent. And and and, uh, and learn to calibrate it. I love that word, calibrate it properly. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you you have to do. But I was blessed too. Of the 14 years, there were two bad teams. And the first one was I was learning, and I wasn't. I was nowhere near as strident as I would become. That was the first one. They were 34 and 48, uh, laden with veterans, and it was all all veterans on one side, and the youthful guys like Don Cheney and who was the same age as JoJo White, same thing. Cowens comes the next year, but that first year. Um, I didn't cover bad teams, and, and there were, you know, and you didn't have that many individual negative instances. The second bad team was 78-79, which is a very educational team for me. The only team I ever had that had some racial divide, because none of the other teams I've covered did, not overtly, nothing that I knew about. But I always said that that team had three factions, the blacks, the whites, and Cheney. John Cheney was like the DMZ in the middle of the, of the two, you know, and he didn't even realize this, I mean, to a degree, because he was just such a sweetheart, wonderful person. He just acted normal, but he was the bridge between everything. And uh, and then the next year, Bird comes and oh, everything's and a lot of other things happen. Fitch comes and ML Carr comes and and uh, uh, Gerald Henderson comes and they and they get great again and, and life's hunky dory, you know. So I didn't have a whole lot of negativity. So I'm lucky in that regard. I didn't have to deal with a lot of crap in that regard, and I didn't have to go after guys too much. I mean, what what, 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 what possible reason could I write something bad about Paul Silas? I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. Technically, and I, it just was be a little rough and, and too I, the next day with Paul. And Silas. I became and I became very friendly with him, and we we got real personal. I mean, I you know we talked about stuff, you know, that was um, I never would have imagined I'd be talking about with a player, and and. Um, uh, you know, I used to well, I admire him greatly, and and um, so uh, it was. It's just a, my experience just was so blissful. It was so good in terms. I mean, I'll take twelve up and two down. Any any writer in the in the world who covers a team would would, yeah. would take that, and that's what I had. Twelve up and two down. That's pretty good. That's a good record. Uh, you mentioned Bird uh, before you get you. you 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 co-authored uh, the book Drive, the story of my life with Bird, and I mean he's known as a guy who's who's uh, he surrounds himself. He he doesn't want to you know project a lot to the audience, uh, especially in the beginning there. Um, but before you get to that comfort level with Bird, how to write a book? How did you 
how did he react to you in the media when he gets into the pros? He's coming from Indiana State. I mean, was it a, was it was it good from day one? Did he know who you were? I mean, how, how what was that process like? You know, I don't know if he knew exactly who I was that first year. My first encounter with him was something that's really funny in retrospect. I was asked to write a piece on him for Us magazine. And it was the summer of 1979, and I arranged this and did it. This is classic Bird at the time, not at his house, but at Bob Wolf's house, his agent's house, because he lived around the corner from him, Wolf or Caddy Corner, in Newton, Mass. And uh, so I went over there, I did the story, and uh, we had, you know, we, I, I don't remember what we talked about other than the basics of doing the story. Then the season starts, and uh, I just do about my business, and and we hit it off. And um, at the end of that year, I know he gave an interview in which he told people uh, that Bob Ryan, Bob oh, Ryan could be a coach. Yeah, uh, that's right. Pretty nice. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and Did you I, think about I it? say this. Oh, no. I coached one time in my life. and in, in the summer of 1966, I coached a summer league team in Trenton, New Jersey, and, and uh, uh, high school age kids. So I'm only a couple years older. And uh, I, had had, I had been the assistant coach with an old family friend the year before, and he he quit and handed me the team. And, and uh, um, I just ran the offense that I knew from prep school, my team. The zone offense, man-to-man offense. Uh, you know, we played man-to-man, and if we played zone, we went two. We played two-three, and uh, we won a regular. I had two really good players, uh, really good players, Trent from Trenton High School, and uh, we won a regular season. And we got beat in the playoffs, and that's the only time I ever coached. I didn't. I didn't have a desire to coach, but anyway, that was very flattering. It was very nice to Larry, and you know, and our relationship never, never had a sour, a sour note. And it's, uh, the one time, you know, oh God, there was some funny stuff that happened. One time. Um, later on, I, I tried to get uh, uh, something was going on. And I just, I went to French Lick and and and, uh, and he wouldn't see me and, and he was mad about everything. And at that point, and later on, he goes, he told somebody, he said, "Shit, Bob's married married me more than my." He says, "My Bob's married me more than my wife." <laughs> so you know, um, you know, we that was you know, that was just so funny. That that was very short lived. Trust me. And. Uh, um, I, he answered your question about Bird found out right away the big bad media wasn't so bad. He kind of liked he liked being uh, he liked it and he grew to like it to sort of point the the interaction he grew to like it so much that in 1987 I believe it was I, I pitched an idea to the Boston Globe magazine I wanted to do a story about the blossoming of Larry Bird and how Larry Bird has become this incredibly sagacious media. Uh, manipulator, you know, and, and, and a, in, a, in a fun, good sense, used to know how to, and loved in dealing with the press and loved in using the press to get his message to the fans and, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, I wrote that story and it was a fun story. And uh, um, he, he, he really enjoyed, you know, thinking about it. And so he grew, he grew up and remember he was, he was, you have to understand the background, you know, and I was fortunate enough to go to French Lick enough to understand where he's coming from, literally. And where he's coming from was the poorest county in the state of Indiana, uh, with a, everything, including a, an old history of, with the Klan from the 20s, and um, where their expectations were, were very minimal, and you're expected to be born there and go through your little life, die there. Uh, in the meantime, you got a job, uh, you, you hunted, you fished, uh, played a little golf, maybe, uh, but you didn't try to be better than your neighbors. Nobody had any money. Everybody was in the same boat. Uh, you didn't have any pretensions, or, or and, and you know, and 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 you just mind your own business and, and live there. And uh, if Larry Bird weren't a basketball player he he would have been one of those people but basketball got him out 
and uh, um, basketball took him all over the world, and and he, he opened his eyes, and 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 he became a, a, a very uh, you know I'm not saying became you know a, a intellectual, but he, he he always was smart, but but there was no value placed on education, no value placed on it whatsoever in that, in that area, uh, and uh, so he, he, I used to kid him I, uh, that he has. He graduated from college. He did his student teaching and all, you know. And he would never have done it if he hadn't been a basketball player, but he did it. And I said, you, you managed to evade the American educational system for like 20 years, you know. <laughs> but and and despite, you know, but he became a book reader and became, you know, I mean, he's he, he was now you know how smart a player he was. Right. We all know that. I mean, the brain was a complete computer on the court, and uh, uh, so there was an intelligent person there. But you're talking about. Environment and when people talk about environment, and 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 uh, you know that's a code word for for you know urban America. Well, this is a different uh, another environment that produced certain type of people uh, quite routinely, and Larry Bird was one of them. I wanted to go in a little different direction here. Um, you know, when I was growing up in the the 80s, I thought being a beat writer for a team was probably the most amazing job you could possibly imagine. You, like you had done, you'd hung out with the players, you did things like that. I mean. My father introduced me to the, the Pride of the Yankees and the, the beat writer in that movie. He was best friends with Gary Cooper, Luke Eric. I thought, <laughs> wow, this is great. I want to be part of this. And now I look at the job, and it just seems like torture. Uh, it's just traveling four or five published pieces a day. You're tweeting nonstop, hanging around all day to get maybe a sound bite. Why would anyone want to be a beat guy nowadays? Um. You've been bugging my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I have not. Why is that? Uh, I ask that question. I say this categorically. There is no way knowing what I know now in 2016. And I started saying this maybe 15 years ago. And, and, and not even beginning to imagine the way, what do we you know, come, become, as, as, as you have outlined, that does I ever want to do this again uh, anymore? I don't know how they do it. Uh, and I would not want to be a beat person for any professional team or major college uh, pay, uh, beat in any major paper in America covering a college beat full time. Um, no, you're right. It's not fun anymore. And uh, they've taken so much of the fun out that the business on one side, you're hammered on all sides. The business side, you know, I mean, the papers and, and the, 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 right, the, the, the technical requirements and, and, and the, the job requirements on the one side, the lack of respect on the other side, uh, the seating well, you, you're 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 not getting you can't see the game. You literally can't see the game sometimes properly if it's basketball we're talking about from where they seat you, and and and, and uh, it's the discourtesy, the disrespect, the the disinterest uh, for anything other than network television or maybe local television, depending, uh, is uh, enormous. Uh, I do not way anyone would do it. Absolutely not. Yeah, uh, not to interrupt you for a second. I, I, I can't. There's, yeah. there's for, you know, you said 15 years ago you saw this. And, you know, I, it never really hit me. You know, I, I'm younger than you. And, I, I you know, it's really gotten to me is seeing these beat writers with Twitter. They're all tweeting out when there's singular plays going on or when there's breaking news within the team, my timeline on Twitter is, you know, uh, so-and-so out with left, left leg contusion. And it's the 17 guys saying the same thing. It's just, it's, it's rough to watch and like, Oh God, that, that, that's, that's what you want. I mean, that's, that's tough. Who's watching the game. I say to myself, yeah, I, 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 I kept meticulous running. I still got running sheets. I saved from, Things over the years, I got like I have John Havlicek's last game. That was on April uh, 9th, 1978. But I got the running sheet from that game. 
and uh, that I kept. And, and I kept running sheets meticulously, and I kept my own stats, and I kept fast break points and second chance points and, 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 and possessions. And you do all this, and the whole game. And, and now the guys walk game started they're not even in the seat they've been i don't know what the hell they're doing and they're coming in and next thing you know they're tweeting this tweeting that um and just you know that once again that's because nobody cares about writing a, a note a game story anymore anyway so but yeah no i don't know how they i, I wouldn't want to do it no no that's just no you're right that's uh completely completely different um there are still lots of good writers out there. There's some wonderful columnists out there, and columnists is one thing, you know. Right. I thank God, but the beat guys, no, it's a it's a drudgery thing, and and uh, and baseball worst of all because it's the hardest one anyway because you got so many more games and such a such a different lifestyle and such a long day and people have no idea, you know. It used to be getting to the ballpark early it meant five o'clock and then it meant four o'clock and now it means two thirty and now it means two o'clock. I mean, literally, uh, and you know, it's just. I, I, it's a long, and then you know you're you're out of there at midnight, and you're back doing it the next day. That's it's it's a tough existence. I mean, for someone like you being on the beat, that's got to be difficult. But I got to ask you this though: What was your immediate reaction for years, for decades, doing the beat, talking to guys when you see something like the Players Tribune appear and magically athletes are senior editors and they want to tell you from their own perspective, not the big bad media. Mm. 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 It was inevitable. Um, you saw it coming, really. Well, the inevitable once you saw uh, the website. The first person that I recall that I would identify who, who broke through the wall uh, regularly was Bonds with with his uh, website. He was he was communicating with people. Uh, he wasn't communicating with the press very much, but he was, you know. And uh, you know, you could. So when it happened, the Players Tribune, uh, I said, "Oh, this is going to be good." Uh, now, does anybody think for one second they're writing these things? Not you know, if you do, you need your head examined. You know they're too good. I mean they're too good. If these guys were that good, you know they they would no. I mean one. There are a couple of athletes we've known in, in historically that yes they could have done this and they did do this. Jim Brosnan who did write his own books for the first guy who was the first guy to popularize the 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 first person uh, stuff uh, back with the long season and, and uh, pennant race back way back in the early 60s uh, did it. Bill Bradley a book I recommend to this day Life on the Run. I know he wrote that book every word himself. The greatest of all books of this type is The Game by Ken Dryden, and I recommend that highly to anybody. I don't care if you don't like hockey, and if you do, you have to have it. If you have it, if you like hockey, you don't have it. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're deprived. Uh, it's so good. And uh, there's a few guys that could have done stuff, but, could, but these guys aren't writing this. They have professional writers, but they are giving them their thoughts and they are taking it to the Tribune. And I mean, they have a right to do whatever they have a right. I mean, you know, we were able to sell the idea for years. We were the conduit to the fans, and we were. And their message was going to get out through us. And uh, and and many times the partnership was was smooth and seamless and worked very very well. Other times not so well. So uh, you know, uh, but you know, but it, it's they don't you know we're not needed in in a lot of ways. Totally and utterly not needed uh, in that regard. And there are certain jobs that still are needed and. But uh, a lot of jobs that once were vital are not vital anymore, and there's no no way of getting around it. Yeah, you, you say that, and uh, it, it kind of leads to my next question here. Did you, you have in the past predicted the physical newspapers, the extinction, and how that will happen soon. And slowly but surely, it's, it's, it's happening all the time. You see it. And are you surprised, though, how quickly – like? Highlight shows like SportsCenter, the viewership is going down because people don't even want to sit through that anymore. They want to watch short clips on demand, gimme, gimme, gimme. Are you surprised that that's mm -hmm. happening? 
So quick. Yeah, that that took that's that blindsided me. I I mean not not having certain things that I'm obviously I'm I'm not in the mainstream. Obviously, there are certain things where aspects of life that I'm I'm, I'm uh, just not. You know, like I'm not at the altar of speed. You know, I I don't need speed. I I, I abhor UFC. Um, I, I mean, I can live without boxing too. But I I, understand, I grew up with boxing. I appreciate, it, but UFC is is just an abomination. I agree. And and the and the idea that people, uh, so many people like it that it is now more important than boxing that it's really being taken seriously uh, is is appalling. I won't get into politics, so please don't go to me. Okay? <laughs> uh, so, but but there is a connection in my mind and the mindsets. But I'll let it go with that. And please make sure we let it go with that. But, um, yeah, I, I, this stuff goes on uh, that, that I can't relate to at all. And, and I, I, uh, the idea that people are satisfied, or this is like the, this is the idea that, I mean, all this, I, I read these stories about all oh, this is going to be streamed, that's going to be streamed. And I'm thinking, okay, somebody really wants to watch the game in the palm of their hand? What happened, you know, it wasn't all too long ago that the whole idea was to get the biggest screen you could find. I can relate to that, you know. Now people, now it's it's the polar opposite. It's having it in your palm of your hand. Uh, newspapers are dying and it will die, and it's just a matter of of, of uh, when. It's not a matter of if. The, the the idea of the daily paper on the newsstand or in your on your doorstep is 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 going to cease happening sometime. Uh, I said. I've been calling this one for 25 years. I said there'll be a time in sometime in the 21st century when the newspapers as we know it will become that uh, there will be all the newspapers in New England. There'll be nothing but megapolis papers. There'll be a, there'll be one big daily paper in New England. It'll be the Boston Globe because it's the biggest and most important paper in New England. Uh, and and there'll be nothing in the middle. There'll be no Worcester Telegram. There'll be no Providence. There'll be no nothing. But but the Weekly Town Crier. Could survive. People still want to know about the board about the board meetings and the graduation. That's true, and, and that's not going to be in that big that, Boston the, Globe. You're right. The weekly town crier will survive. So there'll be it'll be the and and ultimately there will be uh, one publication uh, in print for the elitists who prefer it that way. Uh, you know, maybe the Wall Street Journal, you know, or something like that. And uh, that's it by 2050, if if not sooner. But uh, Look at all the papers that only publish three days a week now. Look at all the papers that that the pub, that but um, uh, that are shrinking. The the news holes are, are, you know, my own paper now. I'm sad to say, I pick up the paper Wednesday and and uh, say Tuesday. I pick up the paper on on a Tuesday prior to the PGA, and and what do I see? AP story by Doug Ferguson. Now Doug Ferguson is terrific. He does a great job for the AP. I know him. He's a good guy. He's a good writer. He knows golf as well as anybody in the world. He's great. But he shouldn't be writing a lead story for the Boston Globe at a, at a major. Michael Whitmer should be writing it, except that the, we didn't send Michael Whitmer. And I cannot remember the last time, I know in no time and since I was at the Globe, that, that we uh, did not cover a major. But that's where we are these days. And uh, other papers are, are in similar you know, a bind. And we, we've lost countless people the last couple of years and by attrition, and we're not replacing them. Uh, so it, it's just... The way it is. Aggregation uh, from other sources. Yeah, there's a it, lot of people. And it's interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, you know that can, you know for a lot of people in life. I'm not one of them, but I'm sure everybody knows people whose high school no longer exists, and and you know they feel a sense of loss. They went to a high school that no longer exists, and I, I think I don't think my grammar school no long, any longer exists as as I knew it as well. Uh, I, that's that's sad, but the idea that I'm in an industry. That is some, maybe before I die will 
no longer exist or be or, or be so shrunk that it'll be, be beyond recognition is shocking because it was such a viable industry. But uh, that we were overcome by technology, did not know how to handle it. It was not met properly uh, with anyone with foresight when it happened. And we were, you know, the Internet changed it paradigm forever and ever. I think we could have avoided total catastrophe if someone – I always thought that if looking back, if people – had immediately recognized this threat and thought, okay, here's what we have to do. The top 15 or 20 circulation papers in America have to have a summit conference. And at that conference, they will say, we will charge for anything we put out there, even if it's $5 a month. But we have to have a nominal charge to make it understood that we can't give our stuff away. And, um, and you know, time will come. We'll have to raise the price. Anything else, that's fine. No one did that. And people got used to getting stuff for free. And, and, and then, meanwhile, it led to other... Uh, offshoots and, and and here we are. Yeah, yeah, you know, here we are. A lot of those people, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess like a periodical summit of the uh, five families, sort of, you know, just to collude mm-hmm. and just say, hey, this is the way we're going to do it. No, you're right though. It's a great point. Uh, you know, a lot of those people relying on the instant video are most likely younger, and many of them probably they know you from PTI and around the horn, and they don't even know that you are a columnist for the Boston Globe. Uh, <laughs> but I got to ask you, so you make that transition. What is Harder trying to add details, flow, and you know the intimacy of, of writing an actual column, or having to you know compartmentalize and convey those smarts, humor, and wit in a really quick time on television. The latter is harder. Yeah, and and you know you and, and you're really putting yourself out there. Like uh, you know, some days you're sharp and you know biorhythms, whatever. Some days, uh, some days the topics just flow your way, and you and you and you immediately conjure up appropriate analogies and. Quite frankly, I think today was a day like that for me. I think I had a really good day. I, I try to be a totally honest. I kid with my wife all the time. I'll come home. She say, "Am I talking to a loser?" <laughs> After around the horn, and I said, "I was robbed." And she said, "You say that all the time." I said, "No, I don't. I say that when I really believe I was robbed." And uh, the days I'll come home, I say, "God, I was. I just. I wasn't any good today." And 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 uh, you know, and I feel that way. I try to be honest about it and, and about that and also writing. Um, you know, some days I think I was really good on sports reporters and other days I say, you know, I, it did, just didn't click for me. Uh, it's harder. Writing, I can handle, uh, you know, ultimately. I think much more consistently well. And, I can, uh, and I'm, I'm lucky that I am glib. Glib Iversman and, and TV has suited me and radio has suited me, uh, but it's not easy. It's not, and it's uh, uh, compared to that, it's not for everybody. It's the reason why some people have survived in it and others haven't, and 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 you know some really really good writers just were never good on radio, and 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 they the guys who are really funny in print are not funny in person, and vice versa sometimes, and and uh, you know I like to think I was lucky enough to combine you know to have a little combination to give me a career. I mean I've been doing ESPN. Sports reporter for 27 years, so I, I guess if I stunk, they would have gotten rid of me a while back. I like, wow. I, mean, I think that's a reasonable assumption. 27 years, wow. So let's yeah. let's, I, let's do this full circle here. So when you look back at your career, and you know, you see how much we talked about how the landscape has changed of sports media, and you know, you had more access to anyone as any other beat writer. Did you have any idea at the moment what was happening? Did you know it was special? Did you did you realize you'd still be answering questions about this 30, 40 years later? No, you don't think in those terms. Uh, it, I never did. No, 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 I just didn't know. Look, I would have been very – no. You just keep doing it, and it was comfortable. And there was a period of time, you know, there's a blissful period of time in, in the 80s when it was just open, you know, I, I was afraid open spaces, extra bases. It was just – it was just unimaginable that the, the how the things would change to the degree they have. It was just so much fun. You ask anybody 
that covered the NBA, who's still around, that, that what's the best time you ever covered it? It was universal, the 80s. It was the, pop, it was the best convergence of, of the game itself, the fun nature of watching the game, with the Birds and the Magics, the Michaels, the Pistons, the Spurs, the Nuggets. They were fun teams. Bucks were a good team. Sixers were a good team. And, uh, there was, and the access that we then had with a media savvy and media conscious and media appreciative commissioner, David Stern, who's one of his first hires was to go out and get himself a first class PR guy, Brian McIntyre. And, and, and when he did that right away, we said, Ooh, this is going to be good. Cause we all liked Brian and knew Brian and said he was with the bulls and, and people knew him for that with the big 10 and, 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 and David Stern recognized immediately why he wanted Brian McIntyre. That was a good sign right there. Oh, the whole thing. And the people, the personalities, I mean, you can't invent Doug Moe. You know, right, right. Doug Doug Moe. You can't. Uh, Doug Moe, God, you know. I mean, it was just the greatest. And the Celtic Laker rivalry. And also this, the, the, you know, and not to mention, you know, that you're always looking out for number one and you're trying to have a lifestyle that you enjoy, take advantage of the perks. You know, the reason why you want to do this because it broadens your life, gives you travel, gives you a chance to do stuff you, you never thought you were going to do growing up in Trenton, New Jersey. Every, think about this. From, from 1980 until uh, 1989, you could pretty much count that you're going to be spending spring in L.A. on the on the company dime. Uh, you know, the Lakers. The only two years they weren't in the finals, uh, uh, you know, were, were uh, 81 and 86 with the Rockets. And, uh, and and every other year you could count on going to L.A. I mean, pretty on. nice. It was great. Not bad. It was wonderful. Not bad. And you know, and it was great. And 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 you know, people talk about and the NBA. That's foolishly what they foolishly did. Of course, was to abolish the two-three-two. David, biggest mistake. David, one of the biggest mistakes he ever made was to abolish the two-two-one-one-one and favor two-three-two on the false premise that people hated the travel. Nobody cared about yeah, the travel. The travel was part of the adventure. It was fun. We loved that back and forth. It was fun, and and the, the nature of it. It was great because we're all the same. Nobody. Oh, we're all growing up. Oh, I was happy we're doing this. My God, can you believe we do this for a living? You gotta be kidding me, kind of thing. You know. So it was it was the greatest the the eighties and and it, it started to change. The Bulls changed everything. Uh, two things changed: charter flights, which meant you no longer travel with your team yep. regularly, and uh, didn't get to know guys, and didn't you weren't forced to wait out uh, delays at the airport at the gate at the bar together, stuff like that. And uh, then uh, the Bulls, because the Bulls became a rock show. Uh, they 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 got security. They they walled off the practice uh, court. You know the practice uh, parking lot. Uh, they they became a whole and everybody of course and they were successful. So guess what? It worked. They were imitated. Yeah. They were imitated. And things changed after that for us and started to go downhill and, and never never got back on track. But uh, for us and uh, but boy I, and I say this all the time. If I could relive my life, my professional life, professional life. From uh, January 1, 1980 to January 31, 1989, or, or I, I, and the next year was great too. That Portland uh, Detroit series was fun, but that was 89, and maybe even backtrack to January 1st, 1970, the 89, the buildup. I'd do it, all the good, all the bad, whatever happened. I'd do it all over again in a heartbeat. And anybody that's covering the league today, I'm telling you, if they could have lived through what we lived, they trade whatever they're doing now for what we had then. Promise you. Bob, I could sit here and talk to you for hours, but uh, I think we'll end it there. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Before you go, I have three quick questions for you. You ready? Yes, sir. All right. Number one, who was the biggest whiner of all the athletes you've encountered throughout your career? 
I guess Oscar and people, there was a, he was the person of whom it was first said. He's been in the league X years and he's never committed a foul. <laughs> and now, now people say that about a lot of people, but I'm here to tell you that the first person I ever heard in reference to was Oscar. Okay, all right. Uh, number two, you went out with this all the Celtics to the wee hours of the night way back then. What is the best story you can share with us today? Uh, yeah, you you you, uh, you certainly hit it there. Uh, <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, boy, I, I, I'm trying to think, I mean, that's a good question. Cause, uh, I'm trying to think, God, I really can't. Um, I just, oh boy. <laughs> My power would have something to do. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can share this cause they, they can't, they can't deny it. I'm in, I'm in, uh, Buffalo with Cowens and Don Nelson who were good friends. Nelly was like a big brother to Cowens, which included teaching them how to drink well. Or, or more, I think, by the way. And um, they're, they were drinking and banging, and they were, they were doing button, butting. They want me to get involved. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not butting. But here's my best one. Ah! Oh, this is it. And this one involves alcohol as well, but of course it does. That's okay. The greatest bar ever in the history of the league was Major Goolsby's in Milwaukee. Why do I say that? A, it was across the street from the arena, so you didn't have far to go. And, and and the hotel. I mean, it's a dream. You know, you go out the hotel, walk across the street to Major Goolsby, across, across Caddy Corn, the other, it's the Mecca, uh, the bar, Milwaukee Arena. So it's the greatest bar ever, it was Major Goolsby's. Anybody that's covered the league in the 70s, 80s will tell you that. One night I'm there at Major Goolsby's with Wayne Embry, who was an executive at this point with the Bucks, and Don Nelson. Don Nelson is still quite active as a Celtic. And the three of us are drinking, and they're having an argument. And I am supposed to be the referee. And the question of the day is, who's a better player, Nelson or Paul Silas? And arguing the case for Nelson is Embry. And arguing the case for Nelson for Silas is Nelson. And Wayne is taking that, you know, he's a huge man, fills a, fills a doorway quite nicely. He's 6'8", 250 in his playing days. And, you know, and he sticks that forefinger of his, which is like a minor little telephone pole in my chest. And he keeps saying, you've got to put the ball in the basket. That's why Nelly's better. And my, it's like a hole in my chest. And the next thing you know, we're outside, and, and they're not going to best cop to this. I can promise you that, if they even remember it. But what are we doing outside? We're taking our glasses, and we're throwing them against the wall. Now, that's a night in the NBA that you don't get too often. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, That's pretty good. Uh, Number three, and the final one here, you and Peter Gammon started the same day at the Globe, June 10th, 1968. Is that correct? I believe it is. Correct. If you could go back in time and the Globe gave you the option of the Celtics or the Red Sox, what would you do? I would have taken the Red Sox without question at the time. Because baseball was still the thing I felt the most comfortable with, even though I knew, you know, I, basketball, I loved, I played it better and longer, and I loved basketball, but I loved baseball more than anything, and I would have taken baseball. It would have been, it never would have worked out the same for me. It is the luckiest break I got that I fell into basketball rather than baseball for the very simple reason that the city of Boston, since Tim Murnane back in the late 1890s, has had nothing but wonderful baseball writers, and, and there's no, you know, and, and the best of whom turned out to be Peter, as it turned out. But the, nothing but baseball. People didn't need a new baseball writer. With all due respect to anybody who preceded me, 
and there, the guy who I really succeeded was very good, but unappreciated Bob sales. Uh, I think there was still some territory to be virgin territory there that uh, I was able to trod. I think I had a chance to make an impact in basketball that I never could have made in basketball, baseball as much as I love baseball. And I, and, and I think I would have been an excellent baseball writer, but I wouldn't have been Peter Kamins. And a Peter, by the way, could have been an excellent basketball writer, but I'm going to tell you he wouldn't have been Bob Ryan uh, and, and, and basketball. I think we both got exactly – we found, wound up at both exactly where we should have been. And uh, I'm very happy. I'm lucky as hell that there was no heir apparent to Bob Sales when they handed me that beat at 23. And uh, Peter had to wait a little longer to get where he deserved, but he, he got there. And the rest, as they say, is history. Bob Ryan. He is the sports. He is a legendary sports columnist for the Boston Globe. You can see him on the Sports Reporters. Pardon the interruption and around the horn. Bob, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. A lot of fun for me, too. Thanks. There he is, Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe. Hope everyone enjoyed that. Hey, if you like this podcast, you should go back and listen to all the other ones. I mean, there's, we have guests, Frank DeFord, Katie Baker, Steve Summers, Neil Best. The list goes on and on. You can find all those on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and Google Play. Remember to follow me on Twitter, at BrianBuff13 and at RedTicketBlues. Subscribe to the show so you don't miss one. And leave a rating if you're feeling so gracious. Uh, with all that being said, I'm out of here.